This is a Federal News Network podcast. The nonprofit Institute for Critical Infrastructure Technology, ICIT, recently honored three women who are among the nation's top cybersecurity practitioners. After conclusion of the ceremonies, following a formal dinner in Washington, D.C., I caught up with them. First, I spoke with Jen Easterly, director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. I asked her about one component of the agency's mission you don't hear about so much. In receiving your award tonight, you mentioned violence and physical threats. What's the connection between that and the CISA mission, which, you know, every day there's a new patch update? So CISA is cybersecurity and infrastructure security. We actually are responsible for reducing risk to both cyber infrastructure and physical infrastructure. And we serve as what's called the sector risk management agency for election infrastructure. So anything that could threaten the integrity of election infrastructure, whether it's cyber threats, insider threats, physical threats, or threats of disinformation or misinformation, we're responsible for helping our state and local election officials do what they need to do to keep their systems and their infrastructure secure and resilient. So we have a whole team of folks who are experts in physical threats. It's not the most well-known part of CISA, but the Infrastructure Security Division under David Mussington does the Office of Bombing Prevention, school safety. They have physical threats and resilience threats. So You know, cyber is the reason why CISA was created as an operational component, but we still have the physical security mission. And as a retired Army officer, then you know how to handle that end of things, don't you? Well, I mean, I have a lot of experience in all sort of security issues across the board and, frankly, in resilience. I was the head of firm resilience at Morgan Stanley and responsible for not just cyber threats, but technology incidents and weather events and infectious disease and terrorist attacks. And so you have to look at the full range of disruption to infrastructure to really be able to protect it. And you mentioned this evening that our elections seem to have gone pretty darn well. There's still some counting going on, but we're not seeing any of the threats that happened maybe last time. There are no claims of, oh my gosh, this was stolen, etc., etc. But disinformation from whatever source continues to be something that seems to plague the nation. What are your thoughts on what's ahead for disinformation? What can CISA, if anything, do about this? And, you know, how do we even define it? So, We are most concerned about disinformation that could be used by our foreign adversaries, and we've seen this from the Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese, to be able to sow discord among Americans, to undermine confidence in the integrity of our elections. And so we do three things. First of all, we put out information about tactics of disinformation so people can recognize these tactics and the techniques that Americans need to build resilience against disinformation, things like actually looking critically at something, particularly if it stokes your emotions, questioning the source, doing some investigation, and then not amplifying it if you're not sure that it's accurate. So we put out work around that. Second, we have something called election security rumor versus reality, which is really just election literacy, because elections are actually very complicated. And if you've seen one state's election, you've seen one state's election. And so if somebody has a question about how do you protect a drop box, how does absentee ballots work, how do you reconcile provisional ballots, 
there is a lot of confusion out there. And so we are putting out information that Americans can look at to essentially answer their questions about complicated issues around voting. But most importantly, what we do is we amplify the voices of state and local officials who are the true subject matter expert and the trusted voices in their communities that Americans should go to if they have any questions at all. And so that's the thing that we always came back to is talk to your state or local election official. And we obviously work very, very closely with them and want to do everything we can to support them. And also in your remarks, you mentioned that the long-term issue with cybersecurity is not simply data loss or ransomware that happens this week or that week, but really deterrence and the idea of innovation and American continuance of leadership in innovation technologies, which are the ultimate source of competitive advantage. Maybe elaborate on that for a minute. Well, as I mentioned in the remarks, these are things that I am personally very concerned about. If you think back 15 years and all of the things that have led us to deal with the technology ecosystem of today, uh, it is inherently insecure. And so what we need is to be able to create a secure technology ecosystem. And that needs to begin with the major technology providers creating software that's secure by design and secure by default. We've somehow accepted this insane cultural norm that software is full of vulnerabilities with incentives misaligned towards capability expansion and speed to market and not for security. And what that does is it places the burden of security on the millions of consumers who are least prepared to defend themselves. And so it's incredibly important that we work with the technology providers. And at CISA, we've been calling for radical transparency. So everybody understands what's in the technology that they rely on every hour of every day. That's why we've been calling for transparency around multi-factor authentication adoption. That's why we've been working on software bill of materials, SBOM, so we know what's in software and what vulnerabilities are inherent in it. But we need to have an understanding of what's in our software, what's in our supply chain, and really catalyze a movement of radical transparency around software so we can raise the cybersecurity baseline for the nation. And what's it like to run an agency that has amazing bipartisan support? Unfortunately, John Katko has retired as the Republican on the committee overseeing CISA, but he said, I want to see it a $5 billion agency. You don't hear that from Republicans very much, but the idea is that both sides really support the agency. Can you take some credit for that? I'm not in the business of taking any credit for the agency. It's a big agency, and I have the privilege to lead the folks there. But Representative Katko, when he came into office, he made cyber a huge part of his focus area. He has been an amazing ally and friend, and we are very sorry to lose him and Jim Langevin and Rob Bortman. But as you mentioned, cybersecurity is a nonpartisan issue. And so I am hopeful that whoever comes into the next Congress is going to realize that the threats that we face to our networks, our systems, our data, our privacy from nation state actors and cyber criminals are getting more complex, more dynamic every day. And we need to continue to focus on how we build America's cyber defense agency so we can defend the nation in cyber. So I'm hopeful we'll continue to get the support that we need. Will we ever get past the password? I sure hope so. Do you use a password vault yourself? Of course. (laughs) Jennifer Easterly is director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, speaking after the Institute for Critical Infrastructure Technologies' recent annual awards gala. In the next hour, we'll hear from Kemba Walden of the Office of the National Cyber Director and Army Colonel Candace Frost, director of the Joint Intelligence Operations Center of U.S. Cyber Command. We'll post all of the interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive.
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash bestmusic to get Live One Plus now. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature.